0: Well, it is always an honor and a privilege to be here and to be able to bring God's word to uh, my alma mater that I love dearly and to be able to speak on the topic of the gospel in the gospels. What better topic could you have than the gospel and what better source than the gospels themselves? So if you would take up your scriptures and turn with me to John chapter 20, John chapter 20, and I'd like to read from verse 19 through the end of the chapter. But I'd like to focus our attention this morning on verses 24 through the end, particularly on Thomas. Um, And so I want to think about this under the title Believe and Live, but let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. It is withheld in our text. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, I always have a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for Thomas, Um, in part because he's remembered for his worst quality. Um, You know, we don't do that with a lot of other biblical figures. If you said, what do you remember about Samson? A lot of people would say, I remember that he's strong. There were a lot of other problems with Samson, but that's what we remember about him. He was strong. Uh, The same thing about Solomon, right? What do we remember about Solomon? He was wise, Well, he had a lot of other problems too, Um, but we remember him as being wise. What do we remember Thomas for? Doubt. Doubting Thomas, we sometimes say, right? We remember him for his doubt, and that's a shame. We don't remember him as loyal Thomas. His first appearance in John 11 is when Jesus is purposing to go raise Lazarus from the dead. And his disciples say, you can't go back to Jerusalem, they're looking to kill you. And Jesus' purpose to go and teaches them something about not fearing the darkness while the light is with them. Um, But it's Thomas who says, let us go with him, that we might die with him there. We don't remember him as loyal Thomas. Uh, We don't remember him as following Thomas. His second mention in the Gospel of John where he's an active part is when Jesus gives us those precious words that he's going to heaven to prepare a place for us. And then he's going to come back and take us to be with him where he is. And says, you know the way to where I'm going. And it's Thomas who says, we don't know where you're going. How how can we know the way? And humanly speaking, then, he's responsible for Jesus' response that is so precious to us in John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But we don't remember him for his loyalty or for his inquiring mind. We remember him for his doubt. And that's what we see here But of course, our Lord uses his doubt as a way to bring his call to his disciple and to us as well, that we should be not disbelieving, but believe. Um, We want to think about that together. What do we learn about this text? Well, we see three things, I think, in this text as it goes on. Uh, Committed unbelief is the first thing we see. Um, Then we see a compelling command from our Lord and a continuing call to bring that command to the world. Uh, The first thing we see is committed unbelief. We have this wonderful story in verses 19 through 23 about uh, Jesus appearing to his disciples. They're, they're, They're in fear, they're in hiding, and Jesus just appears in their midst, speaks a word of peace to them, shows us that it's him, and they're glad. They rejoice at his appearing. And then in verse 24, we're told, Thomas was not there for this. And so, as you would expect, when he gets together with the rest of his friends, what are they eager to tell him? We've seen the Lord. He appeared to us, and we we should imagine that they told it, much as John lays it out uh, in verse 19. You know, where, where were we? We were on the Sabbath day. We were in this locked room, and he appeared to us, and he spoke words of peace to us, and he showed us the evidence that it was really him, the marks of his crucifixion. And you can imagine how excited they are to tell Thomas, who was not there. And Thomas says, I don't believe you. Um, If you were a friend of Thomas's, you might take that a little hard. You know, if your friends who you've been with, spent a lot of time together with, and they came and said, I have good news for you. We've seen the Lord. And they said, no, you haven't. What an absurd thing to say. Um, and And that's really how Thomas responds to what they tell him. He sort of says, you know, for me to believe something so absurd, I would have to put my fingers in the nail marks and my hands in his side. I think Ritterboss boss is right about this. This is all about saying this is absurd. And as a measure of how absurd what you're saying is, I would have to do something in proportion to that absurdity to believe it. It wouldn't be enough for me just to see him or hear him. I would have to have hard evidence. You know, it's the kind of thing we say when we assume a condition that will never happen. You know, if you say, I would believe that when President Trump came and polished my shoes... Right? You don't expect that ever to come true. It's a way of saying it's so absurd, it will never happen. And that's how he expresses his unbelief. Where he says, until that happens, I will certainly not believe. I will never believe. It's a strong negation there. And what are the disciples to think of this? Right? You've been given this commission by the Lord. You're going to go be fishers of men. You are going to go bring the testimony of Christ to the world. The 11 of you are going to go out and spread this good news. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, one of the 11 doesn't believe. And one of Jesus' friends is telling me, I will never believe. Um, what, what might that have made you think as a disciple about the chances of you succeeding on this mission in the world, um, if I can't get Thomas to believe me, how am I going to get anyone to believe me? And that's an important thing for us to think about, isn't it? Because Thomas's unbelief, Thomas's statements, his requirements of absurd measures of proof, are still alive and well in our world today. You still meet people who will say, "I will never believe that." Give me hard evidence. I'm a man of science. I'm a woman who def- to, who depends on evidence. I can't just believe this because you say it. I don't believe the apostles. I don't believe the Bible. I will certainly never believe. What can overcome that kind of persistent unbelief? It's only the compelling command of our Lord. Um, and that's what he does with Thomas. We have a week of Thomas's persistent unbelief. And then on the eighth day in verse 24, we have an exact replica of Jesus' first appearance. He comes again on the first day of the week. He comes again to a locked room. He comes again to speak a word of peace. Uh, but notice what's different in verse 27. Instead of showing them his hands inside, he addresses Thomas and addresses Thomas's absurd condition put your finger here and see my hands put out your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve but believe jesus is willing and able to offer the proof that he demands he's willing and able to prove what it is that thomas thinks he needs proving Uh, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, we're never told that Thomas actually does it. We're told about the invitation. We're told about the confrontation of our Lord with his absurd demand. But we're never told that he actually has to do it to believe. It's seeing and hearing the word of Christ that compels his belief. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Why is this encouraging to us? It's because the word of Christ is enough to dispel the most persistent unbelief. It takes only the word of Christ speaking into the heart of even the most committed unbeliever to shatter that unbelief, to dispel it, and to call them into fellowship with him. And it it evokes from Thomas one of the great confessions of of the Gospel of John. My Lord and my God. He acknowledges the truth of where John began. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only as from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's seen it. He's understood it. And what caused him to believe? It was the voice of his Savior speaking to him. Giving him that call. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And this is an important function for the apostles to take forward in the world. Because as Jesus admits, he's not always going to be there to be seen. Right? I I imagine Thomas later in life as an apostle doing evangelism, doing his apostolic work, and coming across people like him. And saying to them, brother, sister, you need to believe. And them saying, oh, there's not enough evidence to believe. What am I supposed to do? Take your word for it? I need some evidence. I need to see. You've got to show me something. I can't just take your word for it. And I wonder how many times Thomas would have thought, I just wish Jesus would show up. And do for this person what he did for me. But that's not always going to be the way it is, is it? That's, that's actually the exception, not the rule. Faith has not usually come by seeing In this world. It's come by hearing. That's what the apostles are being commissioned to do. To go out and be eyewitnesses to the command of the Lord. To be able to testify to the things they've seen and heard. To people who will never see or hear them. Physically, personally, the way they did. And that's the continuing call that comes to the church in this age. Um, We don't have the appearance of the risen Lord. We will not have that until he comes again in glory. And then it will be unmistakable. There will be no more unbelief because every eye will see and every ear will hear and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. There will be no missing it then. But until then, faith does not come by sight. It comes by hearing. And it's worth remembering that this word of Christ is still compelling when it's relayed by his servants. That's the encouragement that comes to us from this text. We might be tempted to think, well, if Jesus came and spoke, that would have power. But now the apostles are speaking, talking about Jesus. And now we're a further step back with the church. We're sharing what the apostles said about what Jesus said. And you can see how people have been tempted to question the efficacy and power of that. Is there still power in our Savior's voice? Do we need to do something as the church to dress it up? To add efficacy to it? To spice it up a little bit? To maybe make it a little more visible? A little more tangible and tactile? Or is the simple word of Christ conveyed to the world enough? And I think we have to be committed with this scripture to say, His word still has power. It still has power as it's relayed to a dying world, and we should be confident of that and take that forward. Because John says, at the end of the day, why does God have us doing this? Why have we been called to this task? What is our purpose? And he ends this text with those words of purpose. What is our purpose What was the apostolic purpose? What is our purpose as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as those who are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and want to share that gospel with those around them? What is our task? What is our purpose? John makes it very clear. He gives us the who and the what and the why. Um, What are we doing? Who is the gospel for? We want to talk about good news. The gospel is for you. Right? Why are we writing these things? There's many other things we could have written. Right? John says the world wouldn't be sufficient for the books to contain it. If we were to do that. But why are these things written? Why are these things passed along? Why are these things delivered to the church? So that you might believe. You And that's the encouragement that comes anytime the gospel is preached. It's for those who are hearing it. There's no one who can say this is not for me. Because what is the word of God to us? This is for you. That's the purpose of what we're doing. To bring it to anyone who will hear it. And say to anyone who hears it. No matter how far they might be from God. This is for you. The gospel is for you. And what does God want you to do? What's the what of the purpose here? The what is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That you might believe this witness. That this man who walked was God incarnate. Who saved by his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. That you have in him all you need for your salvation. And that if you put your faith and trust in him, he saves to the uttermost. That is the what of the gospel, to just bring that to the world, that the Jesus is the Son of God, and why? Why do we bring that to the world? Why do we want to see people believe? So that you would have life in his name. We are speaking to a dead world. We are speaking to people who are lost in the darkness. Of sin and death. The misery of what sin has brought into the world. And we have the privilege of bringing a word of life. To say to people. The God who made all things. Has a message for you. And his desire is that you would believe in his son. And live. And live a kind of life that we have never experienced in this world. When I was a seminarian, I had the privilege of speaking to a rescue mission. So it was homeless homeless men who were paying various levels of attention to what I had to say. But one person was listening, and after I was done, he came up to me and said, you know, you spoke about eternal life, but I'm not sure I want to live this life forever. And it made me realize that I had a lot to learn about (laughs) preaching, and one of the things that I had failed to make clear is the eternal life I was talking about is not this kind of life. If you're homeless, you don't want this kind of life forever. Um, And I had to tell him, brother, I'm not talking about this kind of life. I'm talking about a spiritual life. I'm talking about an eternal life. I'm talking about an indestructible life, an incorruptible life. I'm talking about a truly happy life. I'm talking about what Jesus calls here a blessed life. That's what he says to Thomas. Did you believe because you saw? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Do you feel blessed? I don't know that... Every day of seminary, I always felt blessed, especially around midterm final papers being due. I didn't usually feel hashtag blessed, but regardless of whether you feel blessed or not, you are blessed. It's a blessed thing to not see and yet believe. It's a spirit wrought thing. It's the kind of thing Peter celebrates in 1 Peter 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's an amazing thing to have not seen and yet believed. It's something that only the Spirit of Christ can accomplish. And if there are any here who are not believing, the call is to you. To believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who saves to the uttermost so that believing you might have life in his name. Um, In the end, we all are known by one factor or another. We remember Thomas for his doubt. And we know that at the end of the day, at the final judgment, you'll be remembered for one of two things. Belief or doubt. That you accepted the Lord, or you rejected him. And so hear our Lord's call. Do not disbelieve. Believe, and you will have life in his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, when we consider from a human point of view, trying to prove to the world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, We know that we would encounter many who would be unbelieving like Thomas. But we thank you that the word of our Lord still has power. That when he calls to believe, he also gives his spirit that enables belief, that can turn stone hearts into living hearts, who can sweetly bend our will so that we want the Lord Jesus Christ and put our faith and trust in him. Lord, we thank you for that faith that is a gift only from you, We thank you for that faith that is sufficient to unite us to Christ and save our souls in him. We thank you for his work, and we thank you that his word still has power and that he still speaks to us. That you should have a word for us is an amazing thing. That you should say to all of us that you desire for us to believe and live. May none of us miss this gift, and may none of us fail to give you all the glory for it. Hear us for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright twenty seventeen, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.